This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Activated by contract termination. Rumors of our demise are greatly exaggerated. Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. She's blessed to be a Bible reading, gun toting, Air Force veteran, wife, and mom, righteously American. Welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on LifeSet TV and listen.stacyontheright.com. Uh, really glad to be with you today. We have a jam-packed program. We're first going to start off with um, this billboard in Times Square. You might have heard about it, or maybe you didn't, because I don't see people clamoring to cover it in, at CNN or MSNBC. It plays too much into the narrative that they have a double standard going on. So we're going to talk about this billboard showing President Trump being hogtied. We're going to talk about a tale of two fingers. You might be wondering, why do we care about people's fingers? I'm going to tell you exactly why we care about people's fingers today on the show. Um, and then we are going to talk about America's cold civil war. Are we in a cold civil war? If we are, why? What does it matter to us as Americans? What would two parts of America actually be in a civil war over? What kind of ideological differences are there? We're going to discuss that as well. And then, um, yeah, more just of the show. So I want to start off with, um, it's the first video cut. It's this billboard in Times Square and a man on the street type reporter is asking people what they think of it. And uh, it's cut one. Personally, I think it's disgusting. I think it's a dishonor to our, our president of the United States. It's disrespectful to our country, to the man personally, and it's a it's a pro um, uh, Planned Parenthood, which I'm pro life. I'm a conservative, so I believe in pro life. Uh, I personally was adopted, so I believe adoption over abortion and. In the video, you can see that there's a, a, a kind of racially, racially clad woman. She's got on, you know, tight top, like a tank top and some black jeans. And she's got the president tied up, hogtied. And then she has her foot on his chest near his neck. He's on the ground and she's clearly in a position over him, dominating him. Um, this is obviously very disrespectful. It's along the same lines as Kathy Griffin and her her whole uh, decapitation fantasy with the president and others that we've seen who've really, not just demean the office, but this is a personal attack and an affront to the presidency that we're, that we're watching. So in that cut, you know, there, there's this gentleman, um, he's obviously conservative. He's wearing some kind of conservative garb. He's an older guy. He says he was adopted. And he believes in pro-life, but he's clearly disturbed by this imagery. 
And I, I can't help but agree with him that it's it's not respectful and it would never have been permitted for President Obama to be shown hogtied. Uh, and just so put a pin in that and remember that for later on in the show today, I'm going to show you clear examples that have been cut out for us by the award-winning uh, Washington Free Beacon. Uh, it just cut after cut after cut um, of, well, actually, I think that mashup is for tomorrow. Oh, so sorry about that. Um, <laughs> but we are we are going to get to that. But just keep in mind that the hypocrisy that we're discussing, it continues on. The examples are glaring and they're obvious. So here in the second half of this, you're going to see another person just walking through Times Square gets asked the same question. What do you think about this billboard? What do you think about President Trump? And this is a completely unhinged response. Check it out. It's number two. Women's rights in their body cannot be promoted. Meanwhile, they're funded for something that people really wouldn't fund, but it's their body, their choice. So with that being said, who is he to say anything? With, like, a woman is to, like, to say anything with her body, with her own choice, and if she doesn't feel as though, what if she got raped? What if something That's happened to her? What what happened if she didn't consent to getting pregnant? You understand? There's a lot to a lot of things. What if she it wasn't her time? But with that being said, I think that's that's obscene. So she thinks the billboard is obscene. She doesn't agree with it. It's almost as if they're talking about two different things. She wants to talk about President Trump and abortion rights and a woman's right to choose in her body. She gets teary-eyed about it. She's really upset. And um, I, I've noticed this phenomenon, people talking about abortion as if the right to kill a baby is something to get emotional over, to even cry over, as opposed to what they call our crocodile tears and our, our crying over the real tragedy and travesty and genocidal nature of the extermination of 20 million black people. 20 million black babies have been aborted since the passage of Roe v. Wade, 20 million. So th this is not, I mean, yeah, we should cry about that. But when we are giving speeches and we get a little, you know, we get a little uh, maybe teary eyed or start to get emotional about it, they always say, we're just using emotional rhetoric or we're crying crocodile tears. They really are very dismissive of the emotion on the pro-life side. Yet this woman is crying because she says someone might not be able to have an abortion after they were raped or, or what have you. And these are very real things that happen in this country, but rape and incest account for less than 3% of all of the abortions done in this country. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll concede that. I'm pro-life all the way, but if we have to find a place where we can meet and agree, then I would agree to have all abortions outlawed can't have them um, only in case of rape or incest, uh, you know, health of the mother. So only 5% of the abortions were, would remain. If you add all those together, it's less than 5%. So 95% fewer abortions, I'd go for it. The current abortion rate, the numbers that have been reported for the last reporting year, 958,000 abortions. So you take 958,000 and leave 5% of that, that's still a horror, but it's far less of a horror by orders of magnitude than the previous iteration. So that leads us to the conversation surrounding whether or not we're in a cold civil war. 
So you may or may not get the magazine. It's an, it's an online magazine that you can get a copy of at Imprimus. Um, and I will tell you the website, imprimus.hillsdale.edu. But you can also subscribe to it and they'll send you a paper copy once a month to get an Imprimus newsletter in your mailbox. So a friend of mine signed me up for it. <laughs> It just starts showing up in my mailbox. She was like, this is stuff you need to read. <laughs> so um, I don't read it cover to cover every single time, but I do enjoy the, the scholarly articles that are found within. And this one is actually from a year ago. Uh, it's America's Cold Civil War. And Charles R. Kessler, who is the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, is actually writing here about what's going on with, um, well, America and the two ideologies that are at war over who will be in control and what direction the country will go in. So he wrote a book uh, six years ago, I think it was seven years ago, and the book was about Barack Obama. This was a book that he wrote because he was concerned that Barack Obama would have a material impact on what liberalism actually was and, and, and is to this day. Um, the title of the book was I Am the Change, Barack Obama and the Future of Liberalism. Now, when he wrote it, he was considering that modern American liberalism was under pressures, both fiscal and philosophical. And he thought and predicted that it would go in one of two directions. Either modern liberals would radicalize or go out of business because their previous iteration wasn't working. You know this because when Barack Obama was elected, he was elected on hope and change. Hope and change from what? Well, liberals don't have anything to run on because they don't have any successful policies. So Barack Obama ran on an idea, not actual policies, an idea that simply electing him would bring about a utopia. Just putting him in office would usher in this era. And that's why you see such a heavy disillusionment surrounding Barack Obama, especially in the black community, because people were sold basically snake oil, something that this will cure all your ailments, just rub it on your elbow that aches, you know, rub it in your eyes if you're blind, rub it on your back if you have, you know, slipped discs. It's supposed to be a cure-all for everything, the hope and change was. When it turns out that it doesn't, not only doesn't fix anything, but it stinks, then you have disillusionment, which causes further radicalization, because liberals aren't just going to be satisfied to, quote-unquote, go out of business. So, he goes on, and again, this is Charles R. Kessler, editor of Claremont Review of Books. He goes on to talk about uh, the actual radicalization, which could go along two lines, again, towards socialism or in, towards an increasingly postmodern form of leadership. So today, we see both of those things. Looking at the Bernie Sanders campaign, you see them going towards radicalism it, by the root of socialism, which leads to communism. Socialism is called progressivism because it progresses to communism. So you see that going on as well. So I, I, you have to think about what, what our parents would have thought. Um, if our mom and dad, like my parents specifically, and they're Democrats, would have been utterly horrified to hear that I was embracing socialism. I grew up in Germany where my dad was on active duty in the army, and there was no way in the world that my dad or my mom, or any of the parents of my friends would have ever listened to me sit up and wax poetic about socialism. We lived in a country, Germany, that still had the wall up. When I was a kid, the wall was still up, which meant 
But the people on the other side of the wall lived in what we call the gray world where there was soot all over everything and they had very little color in the way. Like we take it for granted that we have all these colorful billboards, our cars are colorful, everything in our lives is just full of color. And over there it wasn't. And we were allowed to go over the, the border through the Berlin Wall on a tour that took us basically in a loop. And then you weren't allowed to get off the bus. If you had to use the bathroom, forget it. And we were allowed to do that. And we did it. It looked like someone had gone over there with a gray charcoal, uh, like a brick, and just basically covered over everything with gray. Everything was shabby. The cars were old. I mean, noticeably older, like decades older than what we were used to in West Germany. This is in Eastern Germany, and we, we couldn't understand why their country was in such a state. And then we would go back to class after the field trip, because it, it was like a few hours down. We'd do the tour in the morning, have lunch, tour around Berlin, the city of Berlin, on west the western side, and then go back to uh, the city where we lived, um, which at the time was Darmstadt, because I was in middle school. And then our lessons for the next two weeks would be all about the differences between capitalism and socialism. Now, that being said, there's no way any of our parents would have been like, if, if some of us had come home and said, we like socialism, we want everyone to have the same thing, they, we would have been smacked, literally smacked, because that, that's how idiotic that was. Nowadays, not only is it romantic and fun and acceptable, but a lot of these young people with cell phones in hand, cell phones, custom lattes, um, everything they have is logoized and expensive and uh, the the design of some Silicon Valley young person who is producing all of this stuff in mass in, in uh, the eastern part of the world, whether it's China or Vietnam or someplace like that. And that would have just been unheard of. Now, identity politics is also on the rise. You have uh, this almost religion of race, sex, and power. Those are the only things that matter. It doesn't matter if someone is guilty it doesn't matter if they're innocent. What matters is what's the accuser look like? What is the accuser's demographics? And what am I referring to specifically the Me Too movement? Um, we saw that on full display during Justice Kavanaugh's, uh, his confirmation battle. We were told, believe the woman, no matter what, just believe the woman. It didn't matter that he was innocent. It didn't matter that the accusations against him were without merit, that they were demonstrably and easily disproven. What mattered was that the woman who was accusing him was, you know, college professor. She was a liberal. She had, she ticked off all the right boxes. And so therefore she had to be believed. Also the power dynamic, she had to be believed because, um, Kavanaugh represented a threat to the abortion industry and to Planned Parenthood and to, you know, the, the constitutional so-called right to abortion. So her truth was stronger than any objective or disinterested truth. In other words, the rule of law, the thing that makes us all equals here in America. Um, and so he goes on to describe it as this cold civil war, which is better than a hot civil war. I mean, people aren't, we're, you know, we're not actively enemy combatants with other Americans and that's good. But underlying all of that, when you peel it back, you see presented in the cold civil war the truth of the matter is that we're all divided politically and ideologically, and we have a schism in our society that is really, it's one side versus the other, but not based upon anything that we disagree about constitutionally. It's all based on basically kind of made up structures, identity politics, that I'm so much different 
than any other woman I would meet just because I'm black, that uh, a, a, any person would be more believable or less believable based upon the fact that they are one race or another. So this brings us to the kind of distinction, which is normal politics, which is what we used to have, and then regime politics, which is what we're moving into. Regime politics actually centers on who is in charge and what they are trying to accomplish and their principles. It questions the nature of the political system itself. It asks who has rights, who gets to vote, what do we honor and revere together as a people, as opposed to normal politics, which takes place within a political and constitutional order and concerns means, not ends. So you're arguing about how to get stuff done. Principles are agreed upon. The Constitution is, is not a living document. Uh, it protects our rights. Borders are a fact. National sovereignty is something we should protect. The question is, how? How do we protect it? So moving into regime politics is a dangerous thing for America. And I just encourage you, this will be in the show notes, listen.stacyontheright.com. You can read through the whole article. He puts forward some very thought-provoking uh, questions in the piece. And, and it's a kind of a clarion call to us to examine how we're going to treat each other and what we're going to see as normal in the political sphere and whether or not we're going to address what's happening in our country uh, between the left and the right. Can we be a country, really? It's, it's an interesting uh, question. So we'll be right back with more. Stay right there. Stacey on the right. that we were able to get just the the beginnings of that conversation started from the Imprimus magazine. Um, it's, it's something that we should be thinking about. And honestly, I just, I wonder if there is any reaching uh, anyone who's a Democrat or a liberal who, or someone maybe who really hates President Trump, if we're able to reach them and say, you know, listen, we, we have a real country here that we want to preserve how does destroying the presidency accomplish that? Is it just about raw power seeking? Now, I know a lot of people that honestly would say, yes, it is. Liberals should be in charge. Republicans should not. And whatever we have to do to get that done is what we should do. But there have to be some people out there who would say no to that. So uh, it's a conversation worth having. Right now, um, you might have seen a few of the videos. So I'm, can, we just, can we just be real here for a second about how much laughing I've been doing over this stuff? So the other morning, uh, it might have been Friday morning or Saturday morning, I had my phone out and I was looking online and I saw a video of a guy 
Well, I covered on the show. He yanked down the protesters off of the tube, as they call it, their their uh, underground train. They were up on top of it, standing on it, and the commuters just lost their minds. This was in in uh, Great Britain. Well, then another climate protest was going on where they were stretched across a highway and a motorist got out of his car, jumped out. He grabbed their bikes and started hurling them over the side of the railing. They didn't go off the bridge, but they went into the pedestrian area. He was really losing his mind. Like he was getting really upset because he needed to be somewhere. Then I saw another video of some, um, well, they were girls protesting. They were singing in little sing-song tones and blocking off the road. And a guy, I don't know if he was in a vehicle or what, but he just came up behind them and literally just, he ripped their sign out of their hands and threw it over a fence. And then the girl who was filming, he walked up to her, smacked her phone to the ground, then picked it up and hurled it. And her phone, her phone video was still rolling. So the video from her phone finally came out and the phone is spinning off into the distance and she couldn't find it anymore. So she threw a tantrum in the middle of the intersection, but they got traffic moving again. So here is another, uh, just someone in London, someone else in Great Britain, just they've had enough, they're losing it. He's berating a climate protester, and you're going to love this. Of course, the curse words have been bleeped out, thank God. It's cut three. Beast mode. Three, two, one. But you use all these things. I see one of them on your day on your mobile phones. So you're using all these things that you all protest about. That's right. You hypocrites. <laughs> So, so that's beast mode from the Washington Free Beacon. He says, you use all these things, but you're also protesting them. You're hypocrites. He's right. Oh my goodness. There's nothing more annoying than watching someone who has one of those uh, like climate change stickers or an AOC sticker or the Bernie bro stickers on the back of their Prius drive through the Starbucks drive through or um, you know, they get out and they've got on all these expensive clothes. They're, they're not living like they should have on a potato sack. They have all this stuff on and they're just, they're basically just kind of moving through life, um, in a completely disconnected way. They have no idea, um, that they're, that they're outside of what the, the, they're arguing against. They don't even think, stop to think it through. If you're going to protest the climate, you should be living basically like a hermit. You should be carpooling in a car that's owned by a group of people or a conglomerate, not yourself. You have to be willing to uh, be the first one to pony up. Don't tell other people to downsize and get rid of their square footage and their, their air conditioning and all that stuff if you haven't done it yourself. So he makes a great point that Londoner does. Um, so now I want to pivot over and talk about Ben Sass slamming Beto O'Rourke over his call to tax the church churches. He says that Bernie Sanders is a nitwit and he's trying to um, satisfy his fringy base. So Senator Ben Sass actually, I, I believe he's putting his money where his mouth is by taking to the Senate floor and really getting into Beto O'Rourke's call to strip tax exempt status from churches who oppose same sex marriage. Now, this is important because if you can lose your tax-exempt status over same-sex marriage, then you better believe the next step would be any churches that support same-sex marriage but also support Second Amendment rights, they would have their tax exemptions stripped. Now, I was listening to Steve Noble last week. He's a Christian radio host out of North Carolina, and he was saying, look, 
I want them to strip the tax exemption from churches because that's the only way you can get Christians motivated to do something about what we're seeing and, and just really get beyond uh, where we've been in the past. And there's a kind of apathy that's happening in the church right now where people literally are saying, yeah, I understand that we have a problem. Yeah, I understand that there's there's something to be um, to be upset about, but I'm not political. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. Someone will say to me, yeah, I was listening to your podcast or yeah, I saw you protesting over at Planned Parenthood and I just don't like to get political. Um, or I don't like it when you get political. I like it when you just do, you know, when you just talk about the love of Christ or, you know, something like that. Now I do enjoy Christian preaching and teaching. I love listening to it and I love sharing whatever God has put on my heart to share with, with, with you. I do. I, I love doing that. But to say that we can just be completely apolitical ignores the fact that the Bible tells us we are to render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And that does not just mean paying our taxes. It means participating in our government because without Christians present and participating, you get the lawless godlessness that we're currently experiencing. So you can't have it both ways. You can't be a good Christian who's living for the Lord and going to church and doing all this, you know, uh, needed things, obviously needed. I'm not downgrading those, but then say, I'll have nothing to do with the political. I'll have nothing to do with the um, the part of the world that is a tool by which the government actually exerts command and control over us. The Bible wouldn't tell us to pray for those who are placed in authority over us or to obey those who are placed in authority over us. In other words, to obey the governing authorities, you know, don't speed, don't break the law, et cetera, et cetera. You know, pay your taxes, you know, live peaceably among your neighbors. The Bible wouldn't tell us to do that if we weren't also supposed to participate in the process. The issue really is that it's messy and gross and yucky and not that much fun. The issue is that when we get involved in politics, then we're picking a side. The issue is that when we pick a side, other people that we love or care about or like to spend time with, people that we go to dinner with or our kids are playing soccer together or whatever the case might be, that's the person that you most enjoy grabbing your hot tea mug and going out to the fence and standing there and just chatting all the whole afternoon away about your kids or your grandkids or your dogs might be on the other side of the fence as well politically. And so to avoid that, we simply avoid talking about politics. We don't put a sign up. We don't challenge our neighbors when they're going against what good common decency, humanity mandates, you know, not killing people, not helping people commit suicide, not, not codifying into law things that strip away the rights of parents. I mean, you can go on and on and on, but you just stay away from those topics and instead talk about the latest thing you got from Ikea or your, you know, big project that you've been working on in your basement, or, you know, you're thinking about putting in a pool, that kind of stuff. These are all great conversations to have. And I love having them too. But what I know is because I'm so public with where I am politically, that I've lost friends over it. There are people who wouldn't, they wouldn't even approach a fence where I was standing with a cup of hot tea, wanting to chit chat about anything. Even if we shared that thing in common, a hundred percent, they won't because they know that I'm pro-life that I am a gun owner and I think everybody should own guns, but if you don't want to leave mine alone, maybe we can go on down the line. I'm for religious freedom. I'm for a whole lot of stuff that they're like, that's just, you know, that's not cool, but they're for it when it comes to them. So if I were to be able to get some real political clout and stop that same neighbor who is no longer my friend 
because of whatever from our old neighborhood, from our old, where we used to live about six years ago. And I said, you know, you're not going to be allowed not to go to church. You have to go. Everyone has to go. We're in charge now and everyone goes to church while we're in charge. They would say, that's ridiculous. I'm You can't make me do that. I want religious freedom. Oh, there it is. There, there's, there's how we can understand it. It's, I want it when it's for me. But when I see other people getting crushed down to the ground, yeah, you know, Baronel Stutzman and um, the, the baker with the cakes, all the, all these wonderful people, Melissa's cake shop, the people who've been disenfranchised, it's okay to do it to them because they're just old bigoted Christians. But if Christians are in charge and they make everybody go to church, well then, you know, pump the brakes. That's not going to be something I can put up with. That's why we have to have people like Ben Sass going in and saying what he said. So he had a resolution because he wanted each and every member of Congress to be on the record about whether or not we affirm the First Amendment and in particular the free exercise of religion and the free assembly clauses. He said, uh, this is a 10 minute speech where he slammed O'Rourke's comments as profoundly un-American, uh, a bull-faced threat against Muslims, Jews, and Christians. And he said, you know, Beto O'Rourke is just a Texas politician pandering for a soundbite. Now, Here's the quote from him that I thought was super important. He said, I don't care what some nitwit said on CNN last week to satisfy his fringy base and try to get a soundbite at a presidential debate. The American people ought to know that this body stands for the historical First Amendment. Wow. And that's what we all took an oath to uphold and defend. And that's what we ought to vote to affirm again. Now, I love the fact that he wants to put everybody on the record because it would just be irrelevant if it was only Beto O'Rourke who said these things and felt this way. Who cares? Who cares about a guy who he's of Irish descent, but he's pretending to be of Mexican descent. So he's just as bad as Pocahontas Elizabeth Warren. He doesn't know who he is. And even if you told him who he was, he's still not interested. And by the way, his family and his wife's family, they were, you know, their ancestors owned slaves. Now I don't hold people like, I'm not going to blame you if your ancestors owned slaves. You had nothing to do with it. But the point is, look how he's pandering. Look how he's uh, ginning up racial division and, and sowing discord with his family background. If anything, you'd think he'd look back at that and say, I need to be as peaceable among all men as I possibly can because this is not something that I'm proud of. You know, it, it's not my fault, but I'm not proud of it. And, it's, and, you know, they both have a little bit of, you know, cashola to their name. So why, why not be... Uh, be more on the side of everybody getting along. So he wouldn't matter. He would not matter at all, except Democrats haven't condemned his comments. So instead of Democrats coming out and saying, you know, that's why he's not polling high enough to actually ever be the president of the United States, because we believe in religious freedom for everyone, even people we disagree with, because that's the American way, that's the constitution, it protects it, no. The Democrats are silent because he's only expressing the way that they feel. They want to crush religious freedom that goes against their political orthodoxy. They don't want to crush any religious freedom that supports them. But the minute you stop supporting them is the minute they want to crush you. So all of these things we have to be able to uh, just examine the facts.
Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for joining us on LiveZet TV. I've got some little assets. Let me see if I'm pointing in the right direction. Yeah, some little LiveZet assets that are going to go right there over my left shoulder. And they're going to look so cute and you're going to love them. And I'm going to try to pick them up today while we're out. Um, so what do I want to get into right now? Well, I have two stories for you. First one is this Phoenix abortion doctor who was arrested after pointing a gun at a sidewalk protester. Now, this is kind of unbelievable because he's in his vehicle. So here's 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 how this thing worked out. Um, there's a sidewalk group of sidewalk protesters. They're outside of an abortion clinic in Phoenix, Arizona, and um, he's driving past the protesters on his way out of the clinic parking lot. And he's 52 years old. His name is Ronald Eunice. He's exiting the clinic in his red Tesla, the windows are closed. And the guy is standing there. He says, that's the abortionist right there, walking towards the vehicle as it exited the lot. Now his hands are empty. He's just walking towards the vehicle. He says, dude, you're a coward. Then the abortion doctor is seen through the window of his car, brandishing a handgun, which he points directly at Kesto as he pulls out of the parking lot and drives away. Now, as a gun owner and a concealed carried, uh, you know, I have a CCW. I have to tell you, brandishing a firearm is a punishable offense. You are not allowed to just show someone your gun. Now, let's say the person is actually attacking you and you credibly fear for your life and you pull your firearm out with the intent to use it to defend yourself and the person then flees. That's not brandishing. Brandishing is a completely different thing. Brandishing is, oh, you cut me off in the lane, uh, you know, in the car, here's my firearm. You better not do that again. You know, so you're basically just showing it to intimidate the other person, not allowed. So, um, after multiple complaints from people who were at the scene and video was produced, Eunice was arrested on suspicion of aggravated assault. Pastor Jeff Durbin gave a comment to the reporters on the scene. He said, quote, we are peaceful Christians out here to minister. No basis under law to pull out a weapon and point it at somebody. And he's absolutely right. And I would say that if it was the opposite way, if the abortionist was leaving the parking lot and a pro-life protester pulled out a gun and just showed it to him and brandished it, I would say that that person is in violation of the law as well. Why? Because as someone who believes in the Second Amendment, I believe that we should all be under the same rules. Uh, you know, I don't think he should go to jail for doing that. Obviously, I don't know what the penalties are in Phoenix, Arizona, but I do think that this gentleman should be at least strongly reprimanded, maybe, you know, brought into the courtroom and told by a judge, look, if you ever do this again, we're going to have to prosecute you. This is your official warning um, because that's dangerous. What if while he was driving and brandishing, he accidentally shot? In the image, you can't really tell if he has this trigger discipline going on. Uh, I want to say that looks like his thumb and all of his fingers are curled around, which means no, he doesn't have good trigger discipline, meaning the forefinger, the trigger finger is always straight. And on the outside of the firearm, you only put the trigger finger on the, uh, the, the trigger. You only put it on there when you're prepared to shoot. It basically the, the sight of your gun with your finger on the trigger means the person who's looking at you is about to get shot. That's what that means. So horrible trigger discipline, brandishing. He's got to at least get a stern talking to by somebody in authority. Um, and hopefully he will never do that again. 
not to mention the fact that he's an abortion doctor and he, people should be praying and laying hands on him at every opportunity. And I don't mean laying hands on him, like assaulting him. I mean, laying hands on him to try to get him to stop killing innocent babies. All right. So, uh, you can find all that in the show notes at listen.stacyonright.com. Um, now I want to talk about youth suicide rate as we're closing out the show here. And I know you might be thinking, wow, Monday, you're coming in hard and fast with a whole bunch of stories that are kind of Debbie Downers, but the truth has to ring out. And while everyone else is talking about this faux impeachment that is not going to happen because the Democrats don't want to relinquish control of the impeachment process to the Republicans in the Senate, so we know it's a no-go. This is just a way, a mechanism by which the Democrats can drag the president down, diminish his chances of re-election, impugn his character, and really just tear him to shreds lawfully under the, under the, the cover of, quote-unquote, lawful actions. They just want an excuse to cover their desire to tear at him. Um, so we, we don't have to talk about that every single show. There, I just did. Okay. <laughs> so uh, youth suicide rate increased from 56% between the years of 2007 and 2017. Uh, so this is the suicide rate of individuals who are aged 10 to 24. And this data comes from the CDC. So it's a government source data. Um, so anybody who's out there with their little, you know, cat paws, their little mittens poised over their laptop to send me an email about how it's from the CDC. And if you're a government lover, then you should be totally satisfied with this information. Um, the rate of homicide deaths decreased by 23% between the same number of years, 2007 to 2014, but increased by 18% from 2014 to 2017. So in a three-year span, almost erased the, the uh, drop in homicide deaths. Some of the data indicate even more alarming trends among younger people, showing that the rate of suicide is up among 10 to 14-year-olds. It actually tripled. So again, the suicide rate for kids aged 10 to 14 tripled between 2007 and 2017. That's a crisis. So instead of talking about impeachment, the Democrats could be talking about ways in which communities can come together to protect these kids, to to, uh, to, to get in there with them before they commit suicide, to do something, you know, because someone committing suicide is basically a cutoff. It's whatever you were working on before, whatever you had going on before, then there's a suicide and it's over. Everything's done. There's no more working on anything. There's no more, there's nothing. So why aren't we talking about that? Why don't we care? It's unbelievable that this is not on every news story, every major cable network, all the local channels, everyone should be talking about this. So around 2010, the death rate of suicides among adolescents and young adults surpassed the rate of homicide deaths, according to this report. Now, here's the quote from Sally Curtin, who is a statistician at the CDC, and she's one of the authors of the report. She says, quote, the chances of a person in this age range dying by suicide is greater than homicide when it used to be the reverse. She goes on to say, when a leading cause of death among our youth is increasing, it behooves all of us to pay attention and figure out what is going on, end quote. I couldn't have said it better myself. As parents out there are shocked to find their child has committed suicide, this is something that communities and, um, you know, faith-based organizations and, you know, non-faith-based organizations and the mental health apparatus, the doctors, pediatricians, everyone should be coming together to search out ways that we can prevent this, prevent the snuffing out of innocent lives, children who feel hopeless and decide I should just kill myself rather than deal with the problems that they're facing. Unbelievable that we're not having more 
discussion about this. But we can change that. We can talk about it. We can seek out help from these. We have people who are experts. We have people in our communities who are poised and ready to help. Made aware that this is a huge problem that we want to tackle instead of constantly, you know, suffering from Trump derangement syndrome, we could really make a difference. And it starts at the local level. Beans on the people in Washington, they're not going to solve all of our problems. They probably won't solve any. Um, they're not going to get anything done between now and the election because it's just impeachment fever up there. But we can do what we can here. And so with that, we'll close out the show today. Thank you so much for being with us here on Life Zet TV.